Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. Today we're talking with Dr. Kelly Buckley. She's a graduate of Penn State University and works for the CAA, formerly the College Art Association. Her paper is Pathos, Eros, and Curiosity, the History and Reception of Ivory Anatomical Models from the 17th Century to Today. Dr. Buckley, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thank you. So just wanted to give a little introduction to uh, these, what you describe in your paper as mannequins, um, because I uh, also had to really dig into uh, the photos that you have accompanying this journal as well, because it's hard to wrap your mind around just what these mannequins look like. Um, So before we describe, you know, the possible uses of them, can you tell us um, what these mannequins are, what they look like, um, and basically how they were developed? Uh, So on the outset, what they look like are miniature dolls on beds. um, And they're these tiny white women, for the most part, on these velvet beers, so to speak. Um, but what's interesting about them is you can move their arms and they actually open up and they have all of these anatomical parts inside, but these aren't even as big as a Barbie. So if, if you grew up around the time of Shira, they're closer to the size of a Shira. So they're really tiny anatomical models with really, really tiny parts that can actually be taken out. So if you can imagine a Shira doll that you could take apart and it would have lungs and a heart and a fetus inside but this was all carved in the late 1600s and 1700s. So it's this very precious sort of fragile seeming object that is both sort of movable and and able to be taken apart, but is also there for display in a way. Yeah, and of course, as you mentioned, they're very precious uh, because they are carved out of ivory as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And really, we know very little about the cause or the use of these mannequins, except for a quote from this 18th century professor, uh, Giuseppe Isnardi of Fasano. Um, Can you tell us how he shed light on the mannequin's use? Well, the the thing with Giuseppe Isnardi is that he's the only person that wrote something very specifically about an anatomical model like this. Um, And we, we know that he created his own likely after one of these ivory versions, and he did his in wax, but he put forth this prose or this poetry that kind of explained that it was really to show his students uh, what the body was like and to impart in them a sense of empathy um, for the body. Well, so he's not just showing the body, but he's explaining things as he, as he sort of gaze upon it. but it's also this poem from the voice of this object. So it's kind of giving a voice to an object in a way that art historians don't normally see. Um, but it's also one of the only texts that we have. So um, it's, it's something that's been cited a lot of times um, to, to sort of give the mannequins a voice, but it's also a really important part in really understanding these mannequins as objects of academic study 
because past translations just said, oh, they're for the use of midwives. Um, and unfortunately, this text is far beyond when these mannequins were first invented. Um, so they were created in probably the late 1600s, and this was written in the mid-1800s. But what's really important is that he says um, that they're specifically for accoucheurs, if you go back to the original French. So it's more specifically saying that these were for the use of future man midwives. Um, and that's important because when you look at who owned these and where a lot of these ended up, as well as who made them, they really seem to have been a much more integral part of man midwives and their presence um, and their teaching than people formerly thought. So this is really something that it not only gives the mannequins a voice, but it helps identify some of the ways in which they worked throughout history. Because as you can see, um, you know, if you look at the article, you see the problem with these objects is that there's not a single explanation for their use over time. Um, you know, there may be original intent and there may be user's intent, but these all change throughout time sort of organically. So this is the only text that we have that shows one person's very specific interpretation of them. So I want to touch on something else that you mentioned that, you know, part of the reason, or I guess one of the hypotheses for why the mannequins were created um, was to try and give doctors a sort of sense of empathy about women's bodies. Uh, you mentioned that surgeons at the time uh, were getting into sort of a very mechanical way of treating women's bodies with a lot of different tools as opposed to um, female midwives who obviously knew a little bit more intimately about women's bodies because they were women themselves. Um, so can you talk about that role that the mannequins played? And then also just wondering if you can talk about what um, man midwives were and what they knew about women's bodies, specifically pregnant women in the late 1600s. So I'm going to problematize this a little bit by saying that a lot of um, the information about midwives is to sort of contextualize the mannequins over time. Um, but being created in the, in the late 1600s, um, their, their intent might be slightly, it's not entirely clear um, what their original intent was. But what we do see is that um, starting with man midwives, so all over Europe, you see more and more male surgeons becoming a part of regulating man, man or midwifery. So especially in Germany, um, you know, originally you had min, midwives in every village and they would sort of learn by an apprenticeship type system. And increasingly you see regulation over them. Um, so it starts in some towns with the wives of city councilors and things like that. And then eventually they get male surgeons to examine the women and test them. And these men start writing treatises where they're seemingly correcting the ways of midwives um, and going against a lot of things that were becoming problematized, including herbal remedies um, and things like that, that also became associated with things like witchcraft. So they're going in a more academic direction, which of course men could go and women could not. Um, and in writing these treatises, they started sort of inching into 
the creation of the field of man midwifery, which in one way was surgery. So it was usually male surgeons coming into it. And then these ended up being across Europe, usually men that would come when midwives couldn't uh, birth a baby without assistance. So if they were really in a bind, um, the man midwife would come and they usually had tools. So the thing that a surgeon had that a midwife didn't were things like forceps. And this was, it's kind of an interesting parallel to the mannequins because the forceps were very specific tools and each man midwife tried to create their own set of forceps. So there are dozens of these named after the last names of man midwives. Um, and there's so much competition and that's why you see these, but the, the mannequins were kind of on the other side of this. So therefore teaching and displaying, but not really explaining or being used in a medical sense. So um, it's kind of hard when you're when not, not able to see one of these, but coming from a modern perspective, they don't look very detailed in terms of what we would expect from anatomy. So even when you look at them, they're not explanatory on their own, but they were used as a sort of a prop. So the forceps were a prop that showed mechanical prowess um, and invention and knowledge of the female body. Whereas the mannequins showed, because they were luxury items, a sort of sense of wealth, of dexterity, but also this conceptual idea of this man midwife looming large over the life of, you know, a tiny woman that was kind of, you know, very literally in his hands. So they kind of worked at two ends of the spectrum of man midwives trying to present themselves. Um, but the I'm explaining the forceps because it kind of shows that sense of competition that came with this role. Um, and they were also working against a lot of different criticisms. So in the late 1600s, there weren't as many of those criticisms as you see later in time in terms of um, men being overly mechanical. It's not until you see really famous female midwives like Jane Sharp, where they explicitly say, um, in a in a a way that a lot of people read it um that they were too mechanical and that they were hurting women by trying to use all these metal instruments and not understanding the sort of tactile prowess that a midwife needs um but that's another thing with these mannequins you know you can show you're not just using these giant forceps and extracting babies like some kind of monster you can really show your dexterity by playing with these really tiny, somewhat fragile models, which um, if, if you look at the actual model, often has the woman where once you lift her hand up from her stomach to open her up, she has her elbow on or her wrist on her forehead as though, you know, she's, she's in pain, she's fainting, she needs your help. So it's really looking like the man midwife is sort of saving this, this tiny being within, you know, the, the scope of his practice. Yeah. It's really interesting, actually, as you point out to think about how the mannequins and the forceps are sort of these two things that are working in parallel. You have the forceps, which are obviously 
very mechanical. Uh, they're named after uh, the doctor that creates them. And then you have, you know, these tiny little um, ivory, essentially dolls, um, which, you know, as you mentioned, it's difficult for them to be perfectly anatomically correct because they're carving them out of a tusk, essentially. But, you know, they're made with such dexterity. And um, as I understand, I think a lot of them weren't signed as well. I think you mentioned that. Yeah, none of them were signed. Um, I have never seen a single signed copy, but a lot of ivories of this type weren't signed. So it wasn't entirely strange. Um, like the, these weren't necessarily, they were art pieces, but it came from a family that did very much mechanical pieces. Um, and they signed some of their things if they were made for say a court, but in this workshop, they just didn't sign any of their works at, at that point in time. Can you talk about uh, that family a little bit? Uh, this man, Stefan Zick, uh, he came from a family of ivory turners. Um, can you talk about how his previous work differed from the mannequins and uh, the details that he put into these pieces? Sure. Well, um, actually, Stefan Zick came from a family of ivory turners. Uh, both his father and his grandfather worked in different courts. Um, and they're best known for making these things called pokals, which just look like large ivory trophies. But what's interesting is they often have either moving parts inside, which can move with the help of the string, including tiny ivory portraits on a little sort of coin shape that will twist back and forth um, into two different images. Um, or they'll be turned in almost like double and triple helices um, and in different directions to show their mastery of turning. And turning was thought of as the perfect thing for a prince to learn because you learned geometry, patience, um, an understanding of adaptation. So turning was a, a very big thing in the courts. But when Stefan Zick came along, um, his family had already started a workshop in Nuremberg. So the workshop was not the same kind of payment system. You know, you wouldn't just get, get paid to make things for the court, but you really had to kind of create an audience. And they, they had a reputation for creating these triple helix bracelets, or they weren't actually worn as bracelets, but these triple helix turned ivories that were just fantastical and nobody could understand how they did them. Um, as well as these other, um, like pokals with balls inside of balls. So you would actually turn pieces of ivory inside of other pieces of ivory that had holes in it. So very complicated things. Um, as well as other things that had anywhere from, you know, six to a dozen or more pieces that could be put together. So little puzzle ivories. So Stefan came from that background and he grew up learning those things and mastered them. But then he became interested somehow in anatomy. And one of the first things he sort of created on his own were these eye models, which are very, they're really made for something like turning because he, he'll, he, you can turn the little stand and then at the top, you would just have these half spheres that show all of the different parts of the eye. Um, and those were quite successful, even to the point where 
he tried to make them more and more anatomically accurate, um, as did others in his workshop over time. So they obviously sold quite a bit, and they were very, very much known in the market. Um, and after that, he created these ear models, which also, uh, if you know anything about the ear bones, there are some very minute pieces. And both of these, the eye models were actually larger than a normal eye usually. And the ear models were about the same size as an ear. Um, but it would have these tiny bones that were also attached by a string so that you wouldn't lose them. Um, and these were actually quite successful. Uh, and they were mentioned in a number of places, um, not only in, in the 1600s, but later well into the 1800s. You know, they were still wandering around the market. So these, um, these worked really well. And it seems that the, the full body mannequins were sort of a, a challenge that Stefan um, sort of overcame. You know, he wanted to have a, a full body, but the problem with ivory is that it's only so thick. Um, and what's interesting about these is they, they actually use very little ivory. So you, <clears throat> you don't need a full piece. You can actually use these sort of planks. So these are actually very flat and he uses the bed and carves into the bed to make it look more three-dimensional. So even though he's using very little ivory to make this full body, he's trying to make it look as three-dimensional as possible and show all of the main sort of parts of it. So what ultimately is the legacy then of these mannequins? Do they end up having any long-term influence on medicine or are we just rediscovering them now as essentially art pieces? Well, I think it's telling that, um, you know, I'm an art historian and I'm the person most interested in them. Um, And I think part of the issue is that medical history really came up as a lot of male doctors um, in in the 20th century, you know, getting a, a better understanding of the history of medicine, but with a focus on accuracy. Um, and there are many other social historians that would say it's just as interesting to see how doctors used objects to show their own value or to use as props or to use to sort of bolster themselves. So I'm really interested in objects that are in this liminal space that aren't necessarily there to be the most accurate, but that are there to create a response in their audience, to to create this interest, and that aren't necessarily pinned down to just being, you know, say the the most accurate anatomical model of this century. this was just like a very interesting phenomenon at a very interesting point in time. And I think that looking into that, we can get a much better idea of sort of the evolution of different objects and how they compared to one another and how they worked from one another over time. So I'm really interested in, in this being very much an in-between object, but also a unique type of object. I don't mention this in the article, but I created a catalog of them. And um, I've talked to a number of people that want to make a database, including Duke, who has a collection. Um, But no, I've cataloged, you know, how many there were, what parts they have, if they're bone or ivory, all of their different details, um, created more than 13 different categories for them stylistically. Um, (laughs) And I actually had a Fulbright scholarship 
so I lived in Germany and I worked around Germany fighting them and um, Czech Republic, Switzerland, the Netherlands, all over the place. So, um, and I insisted on taking them apart, uh, especially because the, the parts are so different. Um, mm-hmm. Like in one group, all of a sudden you find ovaries and you're like, oh, that wasn't there before. Um, huh. And yeah, some of them, you know, they'll replace parts, which is really disconcerting. I found mm-hmm. a tiny wooden doll <laughs> that was actually from like a dollhouse set in, in one oh, of no. them. Yeah. Uh, so, th- yeah, they're funny. Um, but yeah, you kind of, once you see them in person, you start to understand better both how they're made and how they feel. Yeah. Um, and how, yeah, sort of how dainty they are. Right, right. Yeah. Really fascinating digging into this. Um, thank you again so much for writing it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Dr. Kelly Buckley, uh, she's the author of Pathos, Eros, and Curiosity, the History and Reception of Ivory Anatomical Models from the 17th Century to Today. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. 